and we're live. We're live again. Okay. We're live again. Holy smokes. Okay. Well, hey, welcome back, everybody, to uh, to the, the our second episode of our podcast and our first real one. This is yeah. This is technically the first real one. Yeah, the first one was uh, just a little. When I was in seminary, that's what we would call Alexio brevis, right? The very first class of the semester it was Alexio brevis. Very short, very mm-hmm. short class. You just get your syllabus and then you go home. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, when you're in the seminary, you have to call it something Latin, of course, right? So this is not the Lexio Brevis. We're actually diving into uh, we're diving into uh, what's our book again, Chris? Death on a Friday Afternoon by Richard John Newhouse. Core odd core diving into this incredible book. So again, if you're if you're just joining us now for the first time, if you somehow missed our first episode, um, yeah, this is again just uh, just Chris Serger and I from the heart of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish in Wadsworth, Ohio. Uh, did I say my name? Did I see who I am? I don't think so. I'm Father Pat Schultz, parochial vicar of Sacred Heart of Jesus Parish, ordained 2016, coming up on five years of priesthood, been here since August, and uh, yeah, just a big lover of Jesus. That's what I am. So anyway, so we're doing this podcast. We got this uh, this idea to unpack this book, um, Death on, well, yeah, Death on a Friday Afternoon. So um Chris, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the book real quick, just to recap it again for us. Yeah, so quick recap. It's uh, something that's been done many times um, by others in, in other forms, in books, in, in uh, classical music, and opera. Uh, it is a meditation on Jesus' seven last words from the cross, which are really statements that are collected across the four Gospels. There are a couple in, in each of them, um, other than Mark. None of them come from Mark. Really? I don't think so. I could be wrong. I found them all in Matthew, Luke, and John. Huh. Maybe there are some in Mark, because Mark was a source for Luke and Matthew specifically. We I'm, should, sh- I'm sure we'll be corrected if that's not true. <laughs> maybe. if you Correct us in the comments. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> so, anyways, uh, the seven last words that uh, I think most Christians and Catholics would recognize, you know, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Uh I thirst. Yeah. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commend my spirit. So, uh, Father Newhouse broke this book down into seven chapters, one for each of the seven words. So, over the next seven weeks of Lent, culminating on Good Friday, which would be the seventh Friday, which technically isn't Lent, but we're going to, for the purposes of this podcast, we're going to yeah, call yeah, yeah. it a Friday. We're going to um, fudge it a little bit. We're going to fudge it a little bit. Uh, we're going to go through each of these chapters. And just talk about some of the different themes that come in, things that struck us. As we said in the intro, his, uh, he's just a beautiful writer. And there are some things that other people have said, but he just says them in a way that just sort of cuts to you a different way. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, we were just saying before we recorded, just like, it's poetry. I mean, the way, you know, there's just certain certain writers, they're just wordsmiths, you know, like, they're just so enjoyable to read. The, it's, it's the word choice. It's the short sentences it's punchy it's beautiful it's just it's i don't know i read a lot of books this is this has really been uh a real a real treasure so i was really glad you recommended it but it's yeah. awesome yeah he's certainly got that um fulton sheen and c.s lewis yes a- about yes. him that just punchy sentences that stick with you and you hear him go huh Ugh. i've never thought about it that way yeah oh totally yeah and like i said in the our intro podcast i mean most of my margin notations are me just writing the word "wow" with an exclamation mark. It's just so good. So, so the uh, so like you said, like each chapter is looking at one of the seven words. So, the first word uh, that comes to us from the cross, Jesus's first word, 
is, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. But that's not the title of the first chapter. The title of the first chapter is actually Coming to Our Senses. Right, right. Coming to Our Senses, which comes from, um, I don't know exactly which translation he uses, but it comes from the story of the prodigal son, right, which I think we're all familiar with. But it's that whole idea of uh, prodigal son, you know, he's cast, goes off to a distant land, takes his inheritance, mm -hmm. takes what he thinks is owed to him, and goes and completely blows it in mm -hmm. every which way. Um, and, then, and then there's that line when he says, he came to his senses, and coming to his senses, he came to his father. That's how Newhouse puts it. Mm -hmm. So the prodigal son comes to his senses about what he is, what he's supposed to be, where he is, right, in this distant country, and he says, I'm going to go back home. Yeah. Yeah, and I just think, you know, this... As we're entering into Lent, um, I mean, Lent is the church's annual retreat in some ways, right? It's We have these two big preparatory seasons. We have Advent, right, before the great feast of Christmas. And we've got, obviously, Lent before the great feast of Easter. But Lent is meant to be this sort of re, just retreat for the entire church, marked through prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, these sort of spiritual disciplines that bring us back to basics. Um, but we're like the prodigal, we are meant to be brought back to our senses, brought back to the heart of it all, right? And I just love, if I, I'm just going to jump back to the preface, there's um, this line that he has that I think is so powerful. I'm just going to read it real. We're going we're gonna to read a few quotes throughout the course of these episodes, but um, listen to this. I say it is surprising because there is nothing more central to Christianity than what happened on Good Friday, Nothing more central to Christianity would happen on Good Friday. Like this meditation, this seven words, what Jesus did on the cross, us unpacking it, like it is the center point of history. It's it's as he says, it's the axis mundi. It's the the point around which everything else revolves. If it is what we believe it to be, if it is God crying out in dereliction, dying on a cross for all of humanity, if that's what actually happened on that cross, that is the center focal point of all of human history, cosmic history. Yeah. He says that if what Christians say about Good Friday is true, then it is quite simply the truth about everything. Yeah. That's, there's no way around it. Everything's downstream from what happens on Calvary, if you're a Christian. And even if you're not a Christian, Christians believe it's still, right? And he'll actually, Newhouse will go into that later in the book, that the, um, not to get too far ahead of ourselves, but the, yeah. the gods that non-Christians believe in, what they don't realize is they believe in Jesus. Right? Yeah. Like, so I just feel like like this time of year, I don't know what your your practice is. I don't know what you intend to do for Lent. Uh, those of you who are, who are listening, like, I just can't think of anything more worthwhile than this, you know, meditating on just a long meditative look at, um, yeah, I guess like the, the end of the Lenten season, right? And I, I mean, of course, as we know, like, the cross doesn't have the final word. The resurrection is the final word. Um, but, like, it's the cross around which everything, that's the drama point. Um, so, yeah, we'll get to that. But, uh, it's so, so, so good. It's so, so, so good. So, where do you want to start us, Chris? Oh, there's so many places. But uh, we were just talking about this right before we came on. So, Newhouse talks about... Again, coming to our senses, everything that ever is and ever was and ever will be, the macro and the micro, the galaxies beyond number and the microbes beyond notice, everything is mysteriously entangled 
with what happened, with what happens in these days. This is the Axis Mundi. And um, I think this, I've read this many times, but this was hitting me more and more because as you've been here, you've been covering a number of themes in your, in your preaching here. And this idea that like, our world as normal everyday people, we revolve it so much about petty things, things that are in the end, not, we're like, we're very parochial in the way that we see things. And you mm -hmm. said to me once, actually, um, and maybe this came from C.S. Lewis a little bit too, but this whole idea, like, there's this whole cosmic drama going on in Earth. We're like this one outpost yeah. out in the hinterlands of the yeah. galaxy yeah. of the galaxies. Yeah. And we think all of these things revolve around, but it's no, that's not at all it. And the more that you can come to terms with that, I think it makes a lot not I think. It makes more of the world make sense. It helps you accept the amount of suffering that we see within the world, why bad things happen to good people. Like all of that starts to make sense when you understand that it's not really about us and what's going on here. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, that uh that image of the outpost, um I don't remember where I read that. But um yeah, someone was reflecting on how the they were just reflecting on all the stuff that's happening in our world and they just were asking, you know, how people ask rhetorically the question, you know, is the church going to survive? And uh, he's like, he says, whoever, whoever the author was, I can't remember, but he's like, my brother, the, the church is the only thing that is going to survive. Like right now here on earth, what we are experiencing as the church, what we experience as the life of grace, it is this little outpost of heaven on earth. Um, and if we could see it with the eyes of the angels, you know, the power that flows to us invisibly and powerfully from, yeah, a realm that's beyond this world that we just, like you just said, this so parochial, right? Like, yeah, we would just see ourselves as, uh, it just changes the perspective, I guess, is what I'm getting at. But um, everything, like I love how he says it, everything is bound up in that what happened on that rocky outcrop outside of Jerusalem on that one Friday afternoon that everything from the furthest star away from this planet to the tiniest of microbes, everything is bound up. Like all the material universe is bound up in the God who became flesh offering himself back to the father. So powerful. Yeah. It's just, and so, and the, the prodigal son, of course, the coming to your senses, like that's his rec his recognition of that, right? But he had to go through. We're terrible humans. We're we're terrible at learning from other people's mistakes. Mm -hmm. We we just want to find it ourselves, um, and so the the beginning of wisdom is to come to our senses and know the fearful truth about ourselves that we have wandered and wasted our days in a distant country far from home. His cross is the way home to the waiting father, right? This, we, we we go through these, um, and, and he goes through this quite a bit, and there's like, we have the tendency to just think that what we've done or our sinful nature is just so small, right? So the, again, it's the classic, well, I'm not Hitler, mm -hmm. right? Um, but it's... We, we need to not judge ourselves against other people, yeah. right? Jesus is saying, he even, he's saying, let the bed, right, what does he say? Let the dead bury their dead. Yeah. You follow yeah. me. Like, yeah. don't worry about them. Yeah, yeah. You follow me. 
Don't worry about other people's sins. Don't worry about other people's salvation, right? You, work on you. And yeah. if you work on you, and the next guy works on him, and the next woman works on her, things will be good. Yeah. Like, But focus on that. Yeah. Yeah, so like this this first chapter, I think, it it's it's all getting to like, it's laying the foundation, I think, of... of in terms of like the whole notion of atonement and forgiveness and um, he has like these awesome four essential concepts. Why don't you walk through those real quick? Where I, I can't find them in my yeah, book right now. Yeah, I've got them. So the first is that something has gone terribly wrong. Mm. Right? The second is that we are complicit in this. Yeah. The third is something must be done about it. And the fourth is we can't be the ones who do anything about it. Those are the four main themes throughout this coming to our senses. And that yeah, that's what, you know, we uh, we touch on this idea of like the real world, right? And like there's this cosmic drama that's happening and it's all caught up in this individual moment, right? I think he writes in here at one point, like, you know, when as Jesus hangs on the cross, every all the sins of mankind. So it's such trite stuff for us to say because we just hear it all the time as yeah. Catholics. But literally, like every every mean word, every mass genocide, every murder, every cheating on your expense accounts, like all of that is caught up at that one moment, which is really happening still, right? That's our whole belief in the mass that there isn't many masses. There's one mass like going on for all time it's all caught up and he sees all of that yeah right yeah i think that like this this that first concept that something has gone terribly wrong and i love how it says and we find ourselves in a distant country far from home um i mean 2020 was the the year of years right like i mean just the like People, I think, are beginning to sense even more acutely now than ever before. Just our there's our world is is crying out. There's a lot. There's a lot that's wrong, um, and it's. I mean, it's not just like it's not just that there's a pandemic. It's not just you know political strife. It's not that there's just cultural strife pulling people apart from end to end. Like I mean, I love his examples. Like from from the horror of Auschwitz to the shattered cookie jar on the floor. Like. Things in this world are not how they're meant to be. Um, and like, it, it, when we say that, it's like our hearts have this deep, like ancient memory of, of a place where things were how they were meant to be, right? So we, we live in this world thinking like, man, like, this is not how it's supposed to be. Like, we're not supposed to suffer like this. We're not supposed to have losses of love. We're not supposed to have friends betray us. We're not supposed to have, you know child caskets like as a priest I, I i've only buried a few kids over the last five years but um there's something in you that just recoils at the horror that there exist um caskets for children like that shouldn't exist you know like there's something that's gone terribly wrong and we have this um yeah this creed at core this cry of the heart that's just saying this is not how it was supposed to be. Something's gone wrong. And we're left with two choices there, that either our hearts are insane for wanting a world other than what it is, or perhaps it's the case that our hearts are right for desiring and wanting things to be set right. Things have to be set right. And I love how he says, he's speaking about like, like we, 
reconciliation, it costs, and it like something must be done about the evil. Something must be done about the justice. I want to read this quote. Reconciliation must do justice to what went wrong. It will not do to merely overlook the wrong. We could not bear to live in a world where wrong is taken lightly, where right and wrong finally make no difference. In such a world, we, what we do and what we are would make no difference. I love this. Spare me a gospel of easy love that makes of my life a thing without consequence. Yeah, I have it highlighted, um, underlined, exclamation points <laughs> next to it in the margins. Yeah. Uh-huh. So, yeah. 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 Spare me a gospel of easy love that makes of my life a thing without consequence. And later on, he touches on that. You're right that this 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 notion of sparing me of this, this cheap grace, you know, as Dietrich Bonhoeffer mm-hmm. calls it, sparing me that it's written in our DNA, right? Every culture has some concept of this atonement. Yeah. He talks about from the canon, the Canaanite altars, the Canaanite altars, I should say, to Aztec temples, countless thousands have been offered in a blood sacrifice. In the cruel twists of a mythic imagination, the scapegoat is not expelled but destroyed. And he goes on. It's a long, terrible history of bloodlust and vengeance, all in the name of justice, all driven by the insistence, the correct insistence, that something must be done. Yeah. And we've tried to do this as man. This goes to his whole uh, fourth tenet that we can't do it. We've tried to do this. You know, communism is an example of man trying to rectify what's wrong with the world. Yeah. And oh, it yeah. going horribly, horribly yeah. wrong. We cannot do it. And Christians, as we, as he says, and Jesus says, like we're the people ahead of time. Mm. That we recognize that what someday every knee shall bend and every head shall bow will recognize that it will be recognized that yes, there is one who could do it. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I was really struck by that whole notion of the where he brings up like it reminded me of C.S. Lewis. I love my C.S. Lewis. And it reminded me of C.S. Lewis when he spoke about in other cultures, they they had that God gave them. Um, oh, I think he calls them like like true dreams or something like that. That implanting in the hearts and minds of some of these cultures were these true dreams, these longings, these aspirations that would ultimately be fulfilled by the gospel. Right. That yeah, from the from the blood sacrifice of the Aztec temples to the you know, the child sacrifice of the Canaanites, you know, um, to the, the is- Israelite practice of, of, you know, lamb sacrifice and bull sacrifice and turtle doves and all the animals, right? I mean, the temple was just a bloody mess in Jerusalem. That's all it was. It was just a bloody, it smelled like, like a, like a death factory slash barbecue place. That's all it was. It was death and meat and blood. Um, and it makes me think of that uh, the the literary French literary critic René Girard, and he's got this incredible, profound theory on hum- humanity and human culture. Um, that civilizations, that cultures, have sought to find and establish peace or unanimity at the expense or at the expulsion of of one, right? Unanimity minus one. Um, that within cultures, tensions arise into. Um, to quell that strife, some scapegoat, some person, some subclass, some group of people is chosen, um, and all of the anger, all the frustration is 
you know, symbolically placed upon them and they're thrown out and then some myth is, you know, built up around it. But what what you see, like as, as uh, Newhouse was saying, what you see in those those ancient religious ways of, I don't know, organizing themselves, you see it fulfilled in Christ who, who like I say in every Eucharistic prayer, on the night before he was betrayed, when Christ like willingly entered into his passion, like Christ willingly becomes the scapegoat that... Um, you know, I, I, it's just so powerful that he's, uh, he becomes the only way out of the madness. He becomes the only way out of the madness. That forgiveness, I mean, it costs. And it costs the, the blood of the Son of God. I loved, I love this, that he says, this is on the bottom of 10, he says, and yet forgiveness costs, right? Forgiveness is not forgetfulness. We hear that all the time, right? Forgive and forget. But that's what it is. Forgiveness is not forgetfulness. Not counting their trespasses is not a kindly accountant winking at what is wrong. I love that. I mean, it's just like, it is not a benign cooking of the books. In the world, in our own lives, something has gone dreadfully wrong and it must be set right. I love this. Recall when you were a little child and somebody, maybe you, did something very bad. Maybe a lie was told. Maybe some money was stolen or the cookie jar lay shattered on the kitchen floor. The bad thing has been found out. And now something something must happen. Something must be done about it. The fear of punishment is terrible, but not as terrible as the thought that nothing will happen, that bad things don't matter. If bad things don't matter, then good things don't matter, and then nothing matters, and the meaning of everything lies shattered like the cookie jar on the kitchen floor. Like, Auschwitz must be atoned for. The killing fields of Cambodia must be atoned for. The death of, like... Every innocent must be atoned, like the horrific death of the child who died this morning, as he said, must be atoned for somehow. But how is that going to be set right? I love that. Right. And I also love that, you know, when he ties, because, again, I think it's so easy. You know, here we are in Wadsworth, Ohio, you know, this nice middle to middle up class mm -hmm. community of where, you know, most things are pretty okay. Yeah. I'm not out murdering people and I'm not out... Uh, cooking the books for some giant corporation and scheming people out of there. But the cookie jar on the kitchen floor, like I can I can go with that, mm -hmm. right? Um, it, uh, there's this quote from John Henry Newman that you and I were talking about, the that whole idea of, and this is like mind-bending, but like a sin is a rupture in our relationship with God, however big or small, right? So the idea that even our smallest venial sins are a disruption in the relationship with God and therefore are actually worse than the destruction of the universe, which does not have a relationship with God. Mm. We do as human beings. Right? So how do you to think about that and go, oh, well, yeah. So maybe flipping somebody off that cut you off at the, at the stoplight, you know, it gives a different perspective on something like that. Again, not to like... Let us all feast on how scrupulous we can be about. Oh, let me, you know. Yeah. When he talks about the uh, the Jewish tradition on Yom Kippur, when they're saying that they'll say, "Oh, I'm a nobody. I'm a nobody," and so the, so there a rabbi comes into the temple and goes, "Oh, who's he to be a nobody? Yeah. Right? You know, like <laughs> who's he to have sins worse than me? Yeah. Uh, but it, it is that if we don't have that recognition, like the prodigal son, we don't come home. Yeah. Because if you ain't lost. Savior won't do you any good. Was it Newhouse who said the the greatest sin of the modern world is the loss of the sense of sin? 
Um, it might be in here. If not, he would have said it if he didn't. Yeah. <laughs> if it's not true, it ought to be. Right? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think, I mean, what, in, uh, when Pope Francis called for the Year of Mercy back in whatever that was a few years ago, he, he released that beautiful uh, reflection on mercy, The Name of God is Mercy, that beautiful book. It is. If you've never read it, you know, after you've read this book, you should read that one. <laughs> but um, he, he has this comparison that, uh, like, people with, with really bad breath who don't realize anymore that they, like, their, their nose blind to themselves, right? The loss of the sense of sin is, uh, is, is, is terrible. It's absolutely terrible, right? So, like, Jesus, we have to be very careful here because the enemy, Jesus calls him the accuser, right? He's the one who comes to accuse us of our sin, um, which is very different than what Jesus said the Holy Spirit's job was going to be. The Holy Spirit comes in to convict the world of sin. It's very different to be accused versus convicted of sin. It's subtle, but it's important, right? Because the accuser, the enemy, wants to associate us with our sin, that this is what you are, right? And you're beyond remedy. The Holy Spirit convicting us of sin is looking at us and saying, like, you are my beloved. You are good. And this is you suffering from sin. It's like the same as like an oncologist who's able to make the distinction between the patient and the tumor, right? And you can tell by, like, in your own discernment as a disciple, I mean, I think for far more often than not, the work that I do as a priest is helping people realize they've been listening to the accuser for most of their lives. Um, that there's a voice that, like, breaks through that with, you know, in the midst of like the condemnation and the shame, when the accusation is filled with shame, that's not from the Father, but when a voice comes in that's filled with like tenderness and hope and like peace, like that's the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and it moves us to want to get rid of it. Um, I don't know where I got on that tangent, but I think it's just really important that like, yeah, we are, we are. Like, it was not, yes, it was not my hand that held the mallet that nailed him to the cross. It was not my hand that held the flagrum that whipped his back and ripped it to shreds. It was not my hands that pushed the, th the crown of thorns into his skull. And yet, my sin, in, like in my little lifetime so far, was present then, and he was bearing it then. That I, and all the sins, it's comp I'm complicit in it. Everything. I, I, I love how you said, like, from the from the kind word not given to the door that you didn't hold open for someone, for the snide little remark that you gave because you thought it'd be witty and you'd attract a little attention. Um, losing the sense of sin puts us in a very perilous spiritual posture because Jesus is a savior and he, he saves people who are broken in sin. If you don't know that you're sick, you have no need for a physician. You're never sicker than a sick person who doesn't know they're sick. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. And that's what he, so Newhouse talks about this and, uh, you know, St. Paul, he, St. Paul talks about how he's the chief of sinners. Oh yeah, I love and that. You, you read that line and you go, wait, that's St. Paul? Like, yeah. he's called St. Paul. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The guy wrote the New Testament. Yeah. And he says, uh, you know, I'm the chief of sinners. Really? Uh, is that really what it means? And Newhouse goes on, he talks about that. He says, um, you know, 
I think, uh, here it is, I, I may think at modesty when I draw back from declaring myself chief of sinners, but it is more likely a failure of imagination. <laughs> yeah. For what sinner should I speak of, if not for myself? Of all the billions of people who have lived and of all the thousands whom I have known, whom should I say is the chief of sinners? Surely I am authorized, surely I am competent to speak only for myself. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, so good. That's like, I mean, when you read some of the lives of the saints, I think about, you know, Teresa of Avila or Therese of Lisieux, you know, you read some of these saints and they, they talk about themselves like, I am the world's worst sinner. You know, and like Therese Lisieux's spiritual director was like, I don't know if she ever committed a mortal sin in her life, <laughs> you know? But, uh, I mean, I love that what you were saying earlier, how like one venial sin, you know, one more, like, they're not insignificant they rupture our relationship with god um if we could see our mortal sins through the eyes of the angels it would be horrifying absolutely horrifying not because they're like so disgusting but because of what it does to our soul right you you pluck a flower from the earth you cut it off from its life source it's going to wither right um like jesus isn't kidding when he says things like apart from me you can do nothing like we we have to abide in him and mortal sin like venial sin all these it weakens that relationship and I mean Teresa Lisieux she's looking at her life and because she was so ordered towards the Lord all of her little imperfections just show like salt spray right on the wind we're all experiencing that in Northeast Ohio right now driving at night got oncoming lights coming at you. And it's when, like, there's another car when you're driving into the light, it illuminates the windshield. But when you're just driving into the dark, it doesn't seem that bad. Chief of sinners. Yeah. Chief of sinners. St. Paul. But he says, justice does require a gradation of guilt. Distinctions are in order, right? That's like, we're good. Not, we're not crazy here. There, yeah. are, there are things that are worse than others. Yeah. But again, concern yourself with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's not helpful though, I would say to like, to constantly, you know, do the, well, at least I'm not Hitler. At least I'm not Mao. At least I'm not Pol Pot, you know, at least I'm not Stalin. At least I'm not Mussolini. Well, yeah, good. You know, like (laughs) stay like that. But you know, like the bar should be a whole lot higher, you know, than the worst imaginable human beings. Um, that's why I love how Jesus, how you said earlier, but he says, strive to enter through the narrow gate. Strive. Like, you have to strive. Like, the kids in the school sometimes will ask, you know, what, what does it take? Like, if you just follow the commandments, like, perfectly, will you get into heaven? I'm like, guys, the commandments are, like, the lowest, like, the least, <laughs> like, required thing to, to be a good human. Right, following the commandments doesn't make you a saint. It makes you a good human. Right? It's kind of like you go to the doctor. You're like, Doc, what do I got to do to be healthier? And he's saying, Okay, well, at the very least, you've got to stop eating McDonald's for all your meals. You got to stop drinking two liters of Mountain Dew all day long. You know, at the very least, get off the couch at some point. You know, like if you're gonna be a good human, at the very least, you can't be murdering people. At the very least, you can't be lying or coveting. You know. Yeah, at the very least. Yeah. Yeah. So we we I mean, we're laying out this whole thing here, right? That there's there something's gone horribly wrong. Uh, whatever the measure of our guilt is like we are responsible, we're complicit in it. Something must be done about it. 
Um, and we've humanity has tried all throughout the ages to do something about it, to have some type of scapegoat, but like the blood of bulls and goats could never atone for like the sins of men, right? Like, I mean, this was what humanity dealt with after you know this more than I do, your history buff, but the like the Nuremberg like human rights trials. Like, how do you do justice to these SS, you know, soldiers? Is it is it just to just hang them? Right. What was justice? Right. You know? Or that was like the um, both of us are reading right now another another beautiful book reflecting on Christ's crucifixion. It's called Crucifixion. Yeah. <laughs> Understanding the Death of Christ by this uh, Anglican priestess. Uh, her name is Fleming Rutledge, but she brings up the example of um, the uh, after apartheid was ended in South Africa. Um, the 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 hard work of trying to bring together what were those what were that what was that called bringing uh, oh yeah there's the the Desmond Tutu led the yes. whole initiative I forget the name of it but just yeah trying to be honest about the the crimes and the horrific things that went wrong and trying to bring justice and but like how do you bring justice to that and and that whole thing mirrors exactly our belief in confession right in South Africa. All the people who were involved, they would be exonerated as long as they were honest about their role in the apartheid. Oh yeah. They wanted to bring out the truth about what they had actually done, and there would therefore not be repercussions for them, like in a permanent basis. I mean, that's a complete mirror of what we believe about confession. Just be honest about yourself, yeah. and it will be okay. Yeah. But you have to be start there. Yeah. Yeah, man. As a confessor, it's it's. You know, I think being a confessor has made me a better penitent, um, better confessee. <laughs> like, just seeing, it, it's one of the most beautiful things when you see someone, like as a confessor, when you see someone come in and they just so courageously and vulnerably just step into the light of who and what they are and just name the stuff, right? Like, we are so good. I've heard so many euphemisms for so many sins. I've heard the vocabulary, you know, thesaurus run around for every sin under the sun. Um, it's like, what are you actually confessing? Just your ability to come up with like your, your knowledge of adjectives, you know, or like your knowledge of uh, whatever the word is, you know, other words that mean the same thing. Synonyms. Synonyms. Um, yeah. Um, that was ironic. I can't think of the word. <laughs> but uh, it is so powerful and beautiful when you see someone come at, come in and just step into the light and name their junk, to name their funk, to name their baggage um, so humbly. Um, yeah, that's when the forgiveness is given. I love this quote on, on 25. He, he's like laying out the situation. He says, if we cannot set things right, if we cannot even set ourselves, never mind the world, right? Who then is to do it? It must be someone who is in no way responsible for what has gone wrong. It must be done by an act that is perfectly gratuitous, that is not driven by necessity, by an act that is perfectly free. The act must be by one who embodies everything whose life is not one life among many, but is life itself, a life that is our life and the life of all who have ever lived 
and ever will live. But where is such a one to be found? Also highlighted in exclamation pointed in mine. Yeah, I've got, I've got, yes, <laughs> swiggly underlines, it's highlighted, it's just, yeah. Which, so like a couple weeks ago I preached on this a little bit, something similar to this. Like Isaac asking Abraham his father, right, they go up the mountain for the near sacrifice of Isaac. And Isaac's asking the question, here's the wood for the sacrifice, here's the knife, here's the fire. And he asks the question, where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And what's so fascinating in Hebrew, they, I mean, the Hebrew text, it doesn't have punctuation, so you don't know, like, it's meant to be linguistically ambiguous, because Abraham responds, God himself, or God will provide himself a lamb for the sacrifice. Right? So, like, does that mean that God will provide himself as the lamb for the sacrifice? Or God will provide himself, like, he'll provide the lamb. Right? The answer is yes. Right? Where Where is such a one to be found? Like, we can't find it. We can't concoct it. We can't make it appear. Uh, but Jesus did it. Thank you, Jesus. Well, he, he does it. And then this is, uh, of course, he does that. But then this becomes... It's like the genesis of our revulsion to it, right? Yes. It's the whole idea, and this is one of the things, this is a concept that I had never, first of all, I had never heard the word theodicy in my life yeah. before, before I read this book, but it has really changed just how I look at the world and everything. It's this, And for those, theodicy is how to justify to humankind the ways of God. Like, It's our putting our justice on God, which is, this goes to this whole thing, you know, people will say this, you'll hear this, you'll hear Catholics say this, like, how could God kill his own son? Mm -hmm. Right? Really, that's how we're going to solve the problem? You're going to kill your own son? Mm -hmm. And it goes to um, Abraham and the sacrifice, his sacrifice, or almost sacrifice, right? It's going, yeah. we don't understand how it actually all works up there. Yeah. We can, we can know certain, certain things have been revealed to us, but... Our idea that we're going to judge what is the right and wrong way to rectify the situation, like it, it goes to the original sin, which is us naming what is good and what is evil. Yep. Which yep. is really what all sin is. It's, I'm going to make this decision to do this thing mm -hmm. because I'm saying this is not evil. Yeah. And I had never, I, you know, you're a little kid and you think of, oh, well, they ate the apple. Well, I mean, really, they ate the apple. That's a big problem, right? Yeah. You know? I mean, yeah. apples are good for you. An apple a day keeps a doctor away. <laughs> yeah. um, no, obviously, and it's an, you have to, it takes years of, like, thinking about these things or, or having smart people like Father Newhouse point them out to me. That it's yeah. like, no, 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 no. The sin is that they were there naming good and evil. Yeah. Instead of just the animals, which they were supposed to do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they were meant to receive it. Like, and I, I mean, gosh, the subtlety of the serpent's lie, right? Inviting them to, getting them to think that God didn't want them to be like him. Right. When like, like five verses ago, he was saying they're making them in my image, in my likeness. Like, they already were like him. Right. And he gets them to think, right? Yeah. To name the good and evil for themselves. Yeah, that like, we really struggle with, I mean, I think there's a lot of Catholics who really struggle with piecing together that this is how God chose to deal with the problem that, that needed to be dealt with that we couldn't deal with on our own. Right. 
Like, couldn't he have just waved his hand, a magic wand, over it and just declared it null and void? Maybe. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I mean, he could have waved his magic wand. That would go back to the forgiving and forgetting. Exactly. But yeah. Then everything has no meaning. Yeah. Like, that's, like, that part, that, for me, that's, like, I don't know, there's a lot of takeaways from this chapter, but that's one of the biggest ones that, like, the, like, the, there's a weight to sin. There's a weight to sin. Who is it? Was it St. Anselm of Canterbury? Yeah. Mm-hmm. What's the quote? that He says, you have not yet considered the gravity of sin. That was, it was in response to the question, why did Jesus have to die on the cross? Right. And that's what he says. You've not yet considered the gravity of sin, the gravitas, the weightiness, that there's something's fallen and has to be picked up and we can't pick it up. And like, this is how God has chosen to do it. I love this on, uh, on 27. He says, I mean, again, it's the poetry that, I, that that's really beautiful. He says, in perfect freedom, the son became the goat become the Lamb of God, is condemned by the lie in order to bear witness to the truth. The truth is that we are incapable of setting things right. The truth is that the more we try to set things right, the more we compound our guilt. It is not enough for God to take our part. God must take our place. All the blood of goats and lambs, all the innocent victims from the foundation of the world, all the acts of expiation and reparation, they only make things worse. They all strengthen the grip of the great lie that we can set things right. The grip of that lie is broken by the greatest of lies that God is guilty. So powerful. I mean, what you were saying a moment ago about the the great lie of communism, that we can set things right. Right? We can fix it. We, If we just get the right political system in place, we will fix the world's problems. No. No, you can't. We you can't. Won't. And every time we try, we we find new uh, new levels of awfulness. It seems with every century, as we go through this. I I love in that passage you were talking about from the the foundation of the world, and he he really starts to pound this out um, in this chapter, and just that this was all in the plan. Again, mm. this wasn't the crucifixion was not a rescue mission. It wasn't God created everything and. All of a sudden, it went awry, and he was like, "Oh, I didn't see that coming." Yeah, it's not. Plain what are we gonna do, guys? It yeah. wasn't that at all from the beginning. Um, I don't think it's in the chapter. Where he talks about the word "conspire." It means to breathe together. Like yeah, the conspiracy of the Trinity from the foundation. They knew it would be this way, and they knew what would be done about it. Yeah. All right. Talk, talk about that icon. Yeah, there's this beautiful icon that was done by I think his name is Antonin Rublev. Rublev's Trinity icon. It depicts the three persons of the Trinity, which, I mean, how do you depict that in iconography? So he depicted it by uh, borrowing the imagery from the Old Testament where Abraham is visited by those three angelic figures. Um, so you have the Trinity of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit sort of arranged in this, uh, yeah, this triangle, more or less, and they're um, clearly in conversation. And uh, my my buddy, Father John Ricardo, is the one who who told me this but he doesn't know where he got this from he, he goes i might have dreamed it i might have read it somewhere <laughs> doesn't matter <laughs> it's true nonetheless that this one interpretation of the icon is that the icon is depicting the the trinity the at the moment of the fall 
like at the very moment where Adam and Eve reach out and grasp and shatter the relationship. And what you have is you have the father looking at like the Holy Spirit and the son saying, who will go and get them? Meaning like Adam, man, who will go and get them to bring them back into this relationship? And the father is looking down and the son's head is cast down and the Holy Spirit is looking as if like, I know this is going to cost you everything. Um, and it's the son who's looking to the father saying, I will go and get him. That's what the icon depicts. From the foundation of the world. Yeah. It was in the plan. It was right there. Yeah. It was right there. Yeah. Oh, so much, so much. I want to, how much time? We're coming up on 45 minutes. Baby, sort baby. Of our target. I knew we could go on, but I, I think maybe it's a couple uh, I want. Couple I, I, I want to land it here towards the end. The, yeah. um. The one of the lines that uh, that just absolutely slayed me. So it's towards the very end of the first chapter. Um, because God is not the God of the philosophers. It's on page thirty-two to thirty-three. Because God is not the God of the philosophers. Because God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because God is love, He sent His Son to the far country to share our lot to bear the consequences of our folly, to lead us home to the waiting father. So that's bringing us back to the whole motif of the prodigal son. Those who issue a verdict so grotesque deserve to die. Justice would seem to demand it, but God made the long journey into our distant country, not to destroy, but to give life. John's gospel puts it this way, for God sent the son into the world, not to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Even if salvation requires that God is the one who is condemned, God cannot agree to a verdict so manifestly unjust, but he does submit to the sentence that the verdict entails. If we have even the slightest sense of justice, we recoil at the thought. But what else is to be done about all that has gone wrong? I love that. Is there any alternative to its being set right by a yet greater wrong? Or can that greater wrong really be wrong if it is the judgment of God that it should be? If we say this way of, this, of, uh, of atonement is wrong, we are back in the garden, presuming to name right and wrong, good and evil. This is the line right here. Love is the justice of the God who is love. Oh, love is the justice to the God who is love. Right? Like this is, this is, I think, part of the fear in some people's hearts that, like, okay, God's going to lash out injustice against us for what we've done. What does God's justice look like? This absurd act of love. And I love how he says, if you're, like, basically, if you have eyes in your head, you should recoil at this, thinking, like, this is absurd. This is absolutely absurd. Like that God would do this. Absolutely, absolutely absurd. But so great. That's why we call it, oh, Felix Kubla, oh, happy fall. Which gained for us so great a redeemer. Oh, Richard John Newhouse, you slay me. Yeah. Yeah. We look at the one who is everything that we are and everything that we are not. The one who is true man and true God. In him we, God and man, are perfectly of one. And this is, all of Newhouse's chapters just end with some killer. killer oh, yeah. Line. So, here through the cross, we have come home. Home to the truth about ourselves. Home to the truth about what God has done 
about what we have done. And now we know, or begin to know, why this awful, awe-filled Friday is called good. He drops the mic, he walks away. Yeah, he does. Oh my gosh. And that's what, that's why, this is just the perfect book for Lent. Yeah. It is a walk up to, and we didn't even get to touch on this, and I know we're running long on time, but like Lent is this great penitential season that the world has not ruined for us yet. Mm-hmm. You know, Advent, I, we all love Advent, but the commercialization of Christmas, it bleeds into it. The world's not trying to ruin Lent. Yeah, right? that's true. It's a good time for us, and it's usually winter. The weather's like it is here. Yeah. It's a great time to sit there and reflect, like, what are we going to do in 40 days? Yeah. Like, what is going to go on? The most moving part of the whole year for me is always that Good Friday service when oh. when you're robed in red, yeah. and you lay on the floor, and we kiss the cross. And, like, and you, again, it's one of those things that you just don't even think. We're like, we call this Good Friday. Why? Yeah. Right? But here, this is why we begin to call. We begin to understand why this awful off-field Friday is called good. Oh, so good. So good. Well, thanks for uh, tuning in and joining us for this first episode, the first official episode, I guess, of uh, Core Odd Core. And um, more coming next week to look for the next episode to drop next Friday as we uh, dive into chapter two, the next word, the second word from the cross. This is the second word. Truly, I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Oh, my gosh, this chapter. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, Lord have mercy. You thought chapter one was heavy. Oh, Get gosh. ready. It's so good. All right, folks. Until next time, God bless. We'll see you. Thanks, Padre. Bye. Bye.